Hello and welcome back to the She Uncensored podcast. As always, thank you so much for choosing to be here. I'm really excited to bring you the culmination of around three months work today in the form of part one of a two-part series on the female body and female beauty standards. In part one, we're going to be looking at the history and the background of where these beauty standards evolved and how they fit into capitalist culture. And in part two, we're going to be looking at the impact of that in terms of our lived experience as women, our relationships with each other, and also the relationships that we have with ourselves. This all really started when I asked myself the question, how much of what I worry about is genuinely mine to worry about? And how much of it is simply inherited because I am a woman? And once I asked myself this question, I ended up going down this rabbit hole of reading different literature and being an ex-sociology student I found myself connecting dots in places that I didn't expect dots to be connected. And if I want to give you any advice for listening to these episodes is that imagine them as spoken essays. So there will be references to various authors throughout. Uh, Most of them will be drawn upon a number of times, but each author is incredibly important because I feel that they are able to back up what I'm saying, essentially. For me, I like to know the whys and hows of things. It's not enough for me to know that things are the way they are. I need to know why they are the way they are. I'm really going to detail. So there is going to be a lot of information in each of these episodes. And hey, if you need to take a break... <laughs> digest what you've heard and come back, then please do so. I really hope that you enjoy these episodes. My hope for you is that you learn something new and this ultimately inspires you to go on and learn more because this is a this is a whole journey that we're starting here. So without wanting to make this the longest introduction ever, I sincerely hope that you enjoy this episode and Let's just get straight into it. Today, we begin with part one of the two-part series about the female body. This, I originally recorded this, and as I was listening back to edit it, I hated it. So I had to go back to the drawing board and I had to rewrite it, and it became longer and it made me even more angry because I went deeper again in terms of what I was talking about. So it's gonna be quite a challenging one to listen to. I definitely found it challenging when I was writing it, so buckle up, (laughs) be prepared. You know what they say, the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off. So with that being said, I hope that you enjoy this episode and let's begin. So starting way back in history, we begin with looking at art. In Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina String, she identifies that art was a very good indicator of telling us about the society that existed during the period of time in which the image was painted. Essentially, art and oil paintings were the Instagram of its day denoting what was popular, what was being communicated within the image, and of course, what type of woman was beautiful enough to be painted in the first place. During the 1400s, men were debating what was aesthetically pleasing to be deemed beautiful. And if you attend any art gallery, you already know by looking around that the white female body is much more visible than the black female body. And here we begin to have the early whisperings 
of the racist origins of modern beauty standards. However, men were also concerned about how they looked and what message is portrayed to society. So for example, men back then were also concerned about the amount of fat on their bodies and it was believed that fat bodies were inhabited by unintelligent men. And to quote Sabrina Strings, there was a view of fat men as too self-indulgent to be particularly intelligent. And here again, we start hearing the quiet whisperings of modern day beliefs that the body represents the character of a person, which I will cover in much more detail in part two. Now, whilst I don't want these episodes to come across as man bashing, the reason that men were the ones who are predominant in these conversations about what is valuable to society, particularly in the realm of aesthetics as well, is because they were the ones with primary access to major institutions that had huge influence on culture. History was written by white men, who had access to religion, education, law, politics, and art. Some may even say that in some respects, very little has changed, and though some would be correct. If female voices are absent from the debates, then their visibility definitely isn't. Women have always been carefully policed through their denial of access to certain institutions, and their forced role as representatives of the nation. In a confusing paradox, which much of being female when governed by society generally is, women have represented the moral guardians of the nation. So during the industrialization era, when work and the domestic life became separate spheres, elite white women were entrusted with the garden of the domestic realm and raising children. She was almost expected to instill the nation's values into her brood. So she better with the right values and heaven forbid she makes the wrong move or misrepresents how things should be. Now, the reason why it's a paradox is because we're not necessarily trusted. We, we weren't even trusted with the vote. We weren't even trusted to own our own property for fuck's sake. We weren't trusted to enter major institutions and actually have influence on how society was structured. So we weren't trusted 100% because even in the raising of our children, we were monitored by male eyes to ensure that we were doing femininity right. Of course, visibility is a huge part of the female experience. It has major ramifications on understanding our history, as well as our experiences in moving through the world. Now, you've probably heard of the term the male gaze. This was coined by Laura Mulvey in 1976 in her essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, which was an analysis that looked at women on screen and how they were represented, interacted with, and formed from a male perspective because largely it was men in control of gender ideologies and also creating film. However, it was also John Berger who touched on this idea a few years back in 1972 with his breakthrough piece, Ways of Seeing. Now, Ways of Seeing was a six-part series on the BBC and it was also adapted into a book. And it assessed the way that we view art and how what we view is influenced by our understanding of the world based upon our cultural meanings of gender, class, justice, etc. You can usually expect concepts from the 70s to maybe not have as much cultural influence today, but honestly, both pieces are timeless and they're so easily applicable to today's modern world. And I will be drawing upon John Berger through much of this episode and keep coming back to him. So be prepared for some quotes. <laughs> so when we look at beauty standards, we're taught to adhere to through advertising, through social media, and through products produced for women. They tell us a story of how we should act and look as females. Now, with regards to advertising, Berger states, women are depicted in quite a different way from men not because the feminine is different from the masculine, but because the ideal spectator is always assumed to be male and the image of the woman is designed to flatter him. 
Now, if I refer to my earlier point about men having access to institutions that essentially created society, this has also created the system of what we deem worthy of attention. And through recognising the huge influence that white men had on historical society and how that has affected our modern day experiences, we begin to understand the origins of patriarchy that still today affect all genders. So historically, men had intellectual access, but they also had the economic means to invest in what was worthy. Where money is invested reveals what is worthy. As a result, beauty standards are part of a capitalist system which ultimately thrives off individualism, white supremacy, and manufactured desires to create profit. Capitalism itself is a hugely complex system and very subtle in the way that it functions. It thrives upon individualism, but creates an illusion of collectivism. Now, let me explain this idea. So it creates an idea that we all have access to the same things within society whether this be education or jobs or beauty ideals, so long as we each work for it. It assumes that we all start with the same opportunities and it's our individual effort that determines how far we go and how fast we get there. In a sense, it creates this idea that we're all in the race together, but we're all running in our own lane. And it's why Margaret Thatcher so confidently announced there's no such thing as society. So for example, if you're in a job that doesn't pay very well, it's because you didn't work hard enough. If you don't get into university, it's because you didn't study enough. And if you don't fit into the ideal body type or beauty standards, it's because you don't care enough. Now, capitalism works to disguise the very real individual differences we all face, as well as the oppressive institutional structures it's created to ensure profit continues to be made because capitalism ultimately divides to conquer. We all look at each other and we berate the other person and we judge each other instead of glancing upward at the very structure of capitalism itself. As a result, we're divided from each other. Whilst capitalism has very cleverly created this false democracy that we all believe in, so we all turn to the other person and think, well, if I can do it, then so can you. And another toxic trait of capitalism is that because we feel it's our responsibility, because we believe that it's our effort that determines our success in life or our adherence to beauty standards that will ultimately reward us, if we can't get there, we blame ourselves instead of the impressive structures that create impossibly narrow boundaries that we're forced to exist in because I think that sometimes capitalism does such a good job of convincing us that the problem is our problem, that we forget that we have individual differences that means that our lived experiences are gonna be very different from the person sat next to us. One of the best examples I can think of and how this has been played out in recent years was with the fast fashion backlash and the demand for more sustainable fashion. When I was on YouTube and I was watching some of the influencers that I like to follow, there was a lot of comments going back and forth where we were holding each other accountable for our choices in fashion and clothing, which is fine. You know, I think it's right that we hold each other accountable. But the problem was is that I saw more arguments amongst consumers than I heard about conversations 
with these fast fashion brands. So whilst we were all arguing with each other, I didn't really hear about stories of groups of consumers directly going to the structures, i.e. those fast fashion brands and saying, well, why are you still producing this stuff? if you know it's unsustainable, if you know it's exploitative. All I saw was arguments amongst consumers having a go at each other for consuming the products because it all acts as a distraction. If we can keep the arguments with each other, then it stops us from looking upwards and really holding the people with economic power accountable for the choices that they make and for the fashion that they put out. And the same goes for beauty standards, the same goes for anything. Instead of looking up and questioning those structures, we look to each other and we tend to argue with each other. And this is not necessarily our fault. It's simply the way that society is structured. So what to make of all this? What to make of, of capitalism and beauty ideals and, and all the stuff that we've spoken about so far? While John Berger states, the spectator buyer is meant to envy herself as she will become if she buys the product. She is meant to imagine herself transformed by the product into an object of envy for others an envy which will then justify her loving herself. One can put it this way, the publicity image steals her love of herself as she is and offers it back to her for the price of the product. Also, in Emma Dabiri's book, Don't Touch My Hair, she states that capitalism creates problems which it then manufactures solutions which can be purchased. As the saying goes, there's always someone profiting off our insecurities. And to quote Emma Dabiri, Entire industries feed off our engineered insecurities to peddle products designed to interrupt our connection with ourselves and the universe. So when we identify capitalism and its interconnection with beauty ideals, we are sold images that are meant to demonstrate what we can all have. But the major problem with beauty ideals is that, as I said, they are incredibly narrow. And the most dominant beauty ideals are that of white, able-bodied, young, cisgender and heterosexual women. Which more dangerously perpetuates the idea that this is normal. And again, brings us back to this idea that it's our fault if we don't meet these beauty standards. We begin to believe that we are the ones that are flawed. So really, beauty ideals don't have to point the finger and say, this is your flaw, this is how we fix it. They simply have to advertise a certain image of the perfect, in quotation marks, woman. And just by looking at that image, we look at ourselves by comparison, and we feel that we are flawed because she doesn't look like us, but we're sold a product that says, hey, you could look like this too. You should look like this. There's a problem with you if you don't. Here, let me give you a solution to that. And so we have this cycle of insecurities being made, perceived flaws being identified, solutions being created by leading companies, and then profit being made from the women who have been made to feel ashamed of their natural bodies and their natural beauty because it's never seen as good enough by comparison. So we can already see how dangerous this is to women. Problems are created for us collectively and we discuss our insecurities at length with each other thinking that they were always ours to carry and thinking that we alone must solve them. Now imagine if we collectively turned around and said, hang on a minute, this isn't ours to carry. We're fine as we are. Can you imagine the amount of businesses that would simply close down? In effect, men 
don't necessarily have to be at the top anymore because the system is already in place. A huge part of this system, as I previously mentioned, is this idea of visibility. Now, the female body has never been the private body. Remember what I mentioned before about females being monitored? Now, visibility can be used as a weapon against us, and it also creates a system of power. Now, Michel Foucault had an interesting theory of power. So whilst, for example, Karl Marx would say that certain men had power due to owning the means of production, Foucault may argue that no one owns power. It's part of a system of which the body is involved. Now, Foucault states that the body has always been in the grip of constraints, prohibitions or obligations. These amount to expected ways of being in the world. The female body has always been subject to numerous constraints over the centuries. However, the female body being visible, the ability to observe or be observed, determines who is in a position of authority. In Foucault's work, Discipline and Punish, he introduces this idea of panopticism, and it was named after Jeremy Bentham's prison called the Panopticon. Now, this prison was deemed to be the best prison that there could be, and it was a prison that didn't need to use huge resources in terms of manpower, and it didn't need physical chastisement as a means of ensuring that prisoners adopted the correct behavioral standards of the prison. It was built using observation as a means of coercing prisoners in adopting correct behavioral standards and ensuring that no riots broke out, ensuring that prisoners were always well behaved and always docile, essentially, and in line with the rules and expected behaviors of the prison. Now, the Panopticon was a cylindrical building and all along the outer walls were prison cells. In the center of the building was a watchtower where the prison guards would reside. Each cell only had the view of the watchtower in front of them, whereas the prison guards in the center were able to view all the cells. So already they had a greater observational advantage than the prisoners. The idea was, was that the prisoners would know that they were being watched. They may not necessarily be able to see the prison guard physically watching them because their view of the central tower wasn't that great. So they didn't know when they were being observed, but they just knew they may be being observed at any moment. And simply knowing that you're being observed by someone who has a position of authority above you would be enough for you to behave in a certain way to avoid punishment. So there was no need to physically chastise rebellious prisoners because simply through the knowledge of being observed, they would adopt the right behaviours that the prison demanded. And a, a modern day example of this would be probably quite a naughty example, but I presume that we've all been there, is you're driving down a road and you see a parked police van. Now automatically, you begin to look down at your speedometer because you know that you're being observed. Now you may not know if someone is actually observing you at that moment because you can never see but you know that there's a camera there and that you know you might get caught if you're speeding. So you automatically look at your speedometer to make sure that you're observing the correct rules of the road. Again, this idea of being observed is really powerful and causes us to alter our behavior. Now Foucault identifies that these observatories would form a gaze that was part of the overall functioning of power. Because for Foucault, power acts by means of general visibility. If we know we may be being observed, 
we act within the correct code of conduct and females are aware that they're being watched. It's the reason why as women we are more likely to shave our legs because if we're caught with hairy legs we know that there is social stigma that comes from that because that's not the correct performance of femininity. It's the reason why when we go out at night we want to wear the right clothes that send the right messages because you see the problem is is even though that we are being observed we're not in control of the messages that our body sends out. We're not in control of the messages that we want to put out into the world because we have been stripped of a authority because the people who are defining what the female body means are not women. So yes, it is the reason why we don't want to walk at home alone at night wearing certain clothing because that puts us at risk. It puts us in danger. And then if we're raped, we are the ones who have to justify what we were wearing and whether any part of our actions or any part of our words indicated at some sort of consent. And this has huge, huge ramifications, our own experiences within our bodies. Very often we feel very othered from ourselves. And again, I will go into this in part two. But ultimately, if we are seen as betraying the correct code of conduct of what it takes to be a woman, if we go out without our hair done, if we decide to completely go out without makeup on for instance we're asked if we're tired or we're asked you know we ha we're questioned about our appearance if we happen to be relaxed in a photo and maybe not suck in our stomachs like we've been taught to do because the female body has to be slim right it has to be toned it has to look streamlined and defined if we're caught in a relaxed moment we're asked if we're pregnant because the the image of the female body is so fucked up that we don't understand that it's normal for a woman to have a belly, which is why this idea of what we see and what's visible in the world is so powerful and so important. Images and visibility and what we observe in the world around us, we create meaning through what we see, we create meaning through what we can identify and categorize in our minds, especially when it comes to advertising and beauty standards. John Berger states that publicity is a culture of this consumer society. It propagates through images that society's belief in itself. And you know what? This is why it's so crucial that large companies ensure diversity is woven throughout everything that they do. If your diversity in your company is only skin color, then you're not diverse. Because diversity also encompasses anything that's alternative to the ableist, heteronormative cisgender society that has been created so far through these systems of power and having alternative imagery in the world and moving through the world in a different way and exposing yourself to the different bodies that are available in the world and not just having this narrow defined view of the female body as white cisgender etc this level of imagery has the power to change perceptions and narratives. And it shouldn't be the work of those crushed under these oppressive structures to heave themselves and their siblings out of it. There are individuals with far more influence and capital to do that and they choose not to. Now imagery can be a vehicle for social change. And also we need to be mindful that when we purchase from certain brands as consumers, because we do have power as consumers, we have economic power as consumers. And when we make purchases from certain brands, we also buying into their views of the world. We're buying into their ethos. I mean, you've got to ask yourself a question. Do you really want to uphold and economically support the lack of diversity in that business? Visibility is always present. 
with Foucault identifying that it functions as a piece of machinery, creating a continuous field of vision, functioning permanently. In a time when we have been more visible than ever owing to social media, that visibility, it feels like a lot. And it is a lot. So in combination with money, capitalism, this internalized misogyny, we find what Foucault identifies as a multiplicity of often minor processes of different origin and scattered location, which overlap, repeat, or imitate one another, support one another, and gradually produce the blueprint of a general method. And the general method here could easily mean how to have the correct female body in accordance with identified and perpetuated beauty ideals. To quote Emma Rich in her article, I See Her Being Obese, that was written in 2011, she states, Foucault's work on disciplinary practices has led to important insights into how self-regulating subjects are produced through obesity discourse. However, the surveillance of bodies against the risks associated with obesity does not operate via a stable central unit, but is a pervasive part of consumer culture, popular media, as well as more formalized institutions of medicine and education. And of course, when it comes to the female body, the most important thing that you can do is make sure that it's slim, because there is nothing that is more heavily policed, nothing that is more judged, criticized and treated with suspicion than the fat female body. So now we've laid the foundation of where these horrendous beauty ideals come from. So in part two, I'm gonna be taking this a little bit further and I'm gonna be assessing how all of this influences our relationship to each other and also our relationship that we have with ourselves, as well as having a little bit of focus on the fat female body and what we assume the fat female body means in the context of capitalism, in the context of beauty ideals and misogyny. Because for me, I feel like no matter how many different beauty ideals come in and out of fashion, the one thing that's remained the same has been the reflection that females can't be fat. If you do have a more, in quotation marks, curvaceous body, then still you have to have curves in the right places. Having any visible cellulite, having any visible fat rolls, having any muffin top, all the nicknames that we give normal distribution of fat on any body. Regardless, having a fat female body has always been seen as shameful and simply not permitted. So yes, next week we will go into that in much more detail. So I hope that you've learned something new in this episode. I know that I did when I was writing it. Like I said, it's been a bit of a heavy one, but if you've made it this far, thank you so much for sticking with me. And I look forward to catching up with you in part two, which is coming out next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. You can find other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Anchor. You can also find us on Instagram at sheuncensored and online at www.sheuncensored.com.